Welcome to this week's edition of Ocean Allison, where I bring you the best in ocean science, education, and conservation through conversations with people who are creating positive change for the ocean. Ocean Advocate is David Helvarg. David is an award-winning journalist and author and the executive director of Blue Frontier, a marine conservation lobbying organization. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. Hi, Allison. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, very excited to talk with you today. Honestly, you, to me, are a pillar in the ocean conservation arena, and I, I definitely look up to you in that sense. And I really want to just kind of start out this interview by diving in headfirst, pun intended. I want to ask you, you've you've been in this arena for much longer than I have so far. You've really gotten to see the ocean conservation world through several decades, and you've obviously been highly influential in putting the ocean on the political map over those decades. I want to ask you, do you feel like there is a new momentum in ocean protection and conservation now, just kind of in the last few years that really hasn't been around in the past several decades? Yeah, no, absolutely. I I think that the awareness is reaching the uh, critical stage where um, not only is a lot of engagement at the policy level, but the general public is beginning to uh, pick up at least on the idea that the oceans are in trouble. And that we need to do something. You know, I've been covering the oceans. I covered them as a journalist for almost 30 years in the last 13 years as an advocate for change. And just in the last few years, I think we're reaching a critical stage. It's almost like an X. You know, we're seeing this decline. One one arm of the X would be the decline of the marine ecosystems, um, these cascading disasters from industrial overfishing to um oil, plastic, chemical, nutrient, noise pollution, the loss of habitat, and on top of all that, fossil fuel-fired climate change. But the the other arm of the X is public awareness of these problems and that they are as frustrating as they are. There are solutions that are available. I think we're really at that juncture. I was just at the Our Ocean Conference put on by Secretary of State John Kerry, and he brought in 90 national leaders and many nonprofit citizen groups. And I think there's this bottom-up push that's generating increased awareness of the problems. And, and as people become aware where that X crosses, the rising arm of public, not just awareness, but willingness to take action, hits that declining ecosystem, that reality that we're facing. And hopefully as this X crosses in this moment, it lets us know what's left to, to save and restore. And I'm, I'm hopeful that we're, we're at that juncture or very close to that juncture where we move from knowing there's cascading disasters taking place in the greater part of our blue planet to taking action to try and correct and turn the tide. I, I think we are just about at that moment. I, you know, you never know when you're with social movements, you never know when you reach a critical mass. But there's that feeling that we're close to it. As John Kerry said at the end of our ocean conference, we're at a beginning, but just a beginning. And do you feel like that momentum on the positive side, that it's really 
this combining force of political leaders like John Kerry and and others also with kind of the public individuals perceptions and consciousness of the ocean kind of colliding at the same time well well my approach is has always been since I started Blue Frontier 13 years ago that it's bottom up the the driver of change has to be what I call the seaweed the marine grassroots movements what the first thing we did uh, in creating Blue Frontier back in 2003 was to create a, a blue movement directory it's first as a book and now it's an online directory of some 1400 citizen groups agencies and science centers that are committed to ocean conservation and, and trying to find solutions and when you get that bottom up momentum that's when uh when change begins to happen i remember back at uh, the 1992 earth summit in rio that i was covering as a journalist uh, doing a documentary there and and there were 192 heads of state, and not a lot got done. But one evening, what left me hopeful from the whole event, one evening there were 30,000 people marching through the nighttime streets of Rio and about 15,000 locals and 15,000 international environmental activists. And they were all led by this, these Buddhist monks carrying this large banner at the front of the march with army helicopters overhead and floodlights and and the banner said, when the people lead, the leaders will follow. And, and that's kind of the formulation. When people realize there's a problem and commit to changing it, that will drive leaders and governments and, and corporations to begin to make the necessary change. And so with Blue Frontier, the organization that you started, beyond the Blue Movement directory that you just talked about and kind of the seaweed rebellion movement, that you talked about as in terms of grassroots for the ocean. Um, you guys also put on these Blue Vision Summits. Can you talk about what Blue Vision Summits are and really what the goal of them is? Absolutely. It's, you know, a lot of our work at Blue Frontier is really kind of like herding catfish. I mean, what we're trying to do is bring people who understand and have solutions at the grassroots, the kind of uh, marine conservation community together and link them up with other constituents, be it, you know, the the green ports leaders, the Coast Guard, the uh, our ocean heroes in Washington, D.C. So we had our first Blue Vision Summit in uh, 2004 in D.C., uh, bringing grassroots activists to the Capitol. One of our keynote speakers was Peter Benchley. Um, everybody sort of knows he wrote Jaws, but they don't know that he dedicated his life to preserving, uh, protecting sharks and their habitat. And so when he passed away, one of the early outcomes of, of our first Blue Vision Summit was we created the Peter Benchley Ocean Awards, which now are kind of the global Academy Awards for the ocean, for people providing solutions. We have them every two years. And uh, in 2009, our Blue Vision Summit was key in, in kind of launching President Obama's national ocean policy, bringing some of the early leaders of that administration together with some of the key marine scientists and advocates and making connections with the grassroots. And so I'm hopeful, again, this coming uh, May 9th to 11th, we'll have our sixth Blue Vision Summit, which will be bringing an ocean agenda for uh, the next eight years to the next Congress and president, whoever she may be. <laughs> At our last one in 2015, we brought together leadership. Our keynoters were the head of, of NOAA, Paul Zunfeld, the commandant of the Coast Guard, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who's uh, one of our ocean champions in the Senate, and, and a young emerging uh, marine science advocate were our keynoters. And then we had hundreds of uh, people from 
local grassroots activists to regional groups like the Gulf Restoration Network out of New Orleans to national groups like Oceana and Ocean Conservancy and Greenpeace. And uh, we then went up on Capitol Hill. We had our Capitol Hill Healthy Ocean Hill Day, which turned out to be the largest citizen lobby for ocean conservation, at least in U.S. history. We had 24 state delegations. We held 163 meetings, including direct meetings with like nine senators and 26 congresspeople. And we did our two main asks or demands, you know, because we're the people who elect these people were one, we put down our markers against proposed offshore drilling that the Obama administration had then proposed for the Atlantic and the Arctic. And both of those related defeated through popular mobilization. But we also came in and supported a uh, IUU fishing bill. It's illegal, unreported, undocumented fishing to go after pirate fishing that takes about a third of all the fish in the sea and also is very much tied into organized crime. A lot of the the crews working on these ships are actually slave crews out of countries like Burma, refugees and and exploited uh, labor. So the, the pirate fishing is also organized crime. It's human trafficking. It's slavery. And we had non you know bipartisan support for the bill. But most of the people we met with, the House members and others, were not aware that there was this bill and that it had support from both sides of the aisles. And, and I think our lobby was critical in getting it passed into law a few months later. Today, part of the, the bill was, was U.S. ratification of a, a global treaty called the Port States Agreement, where any suspected pirate vessel coming in to, to offload its fish in any port in the world can now be seized and criminally prosecuted. You know, I'm thinking the ocean is one of those issues that still has bipartisan support. We talk in, in the U.S. of restoring the blue and our red, white, and blue and, and the whole blue marble planet beyond it, creating the kind of coalitions and agreements that can turn the tide. On the other hand, maybe my expectations, our expectations are so low that we get excited when Republicans and Democrats can agree to oppose pirates. But in any case, we, we do know that, you know, as we look at these multiple disasters we're, we're facing in the blue ocean, you know, uh, we're changing the basic chemistry of the sea at this point with ocean acidification, uh, which is a result of fossil fuel fired climate disruption. We know what the problems are. We're less despairing than frustrated because we also know what the solutions are. You know, when you stop killing fish, they tend to grow back. Stop producing 100 million metric tons of throwaway plastic every year and less of it will end up in the ocean. What we need is sound policies to uh, turn things around. And so what we're hoping uh, this spring is to come in with to the new new Congress and new administration and say, here are some things we as a community think are realistic solutions. You know, we try and come together every two years and, and create this sense of community, of building a common strategy, putting panels and workshops together, and then taking our knowledge onto Capitol Hill, and then taking it back to our communities and staying in touch with our elected officials and continuing to work at uh, all levels of government, you know, um, local, state, federal, and tribal to uh, to make the oceans a visible issue, which they've not really been till now. And so being really on the front lines of getting the ocean into the political arena, can you talk a little bit about the upcoming election with what are the candidates claiming that they're going to be doing for the oceans in terms of putting the ocean in the forefront of what we really need to be focusing on? Right. I, I mean, unfortunately, this has been it's been largely issue free campaign. 
it's a lot of vitriol and a lot of uh, scapegoating on, uh, you know, blaming uh, immigrants for economic loss of economic opportunity. A lot of, of, particularly on the one side, a lot of scapegoating. Our position is, let's talk about where the candidates stand on the real issues. So I, I formulated a letter that was signed on to by 115 ocean leaders who basically said, you know, on the international front, we need more agreements to stop pirate fishing. We need more uh, marine protected areas. Domestically, we need to maintain uh, fisheries reforms to have sustainable uh, fisheries and to let the science be the guide and to have traceability so people know what's on their plates. And we need an ocean policy that looks at the ocean holistically. And, and we don't just give permits for different industrial uses of the ocean. We look at where the wildlife is, where the important habitats are, and we adjust our shipping lanes and our offshore clean energy fields. And it's like putting urban planning in the water column because there are such demands on our coastal seas and on our high seas. And so that was the letter that was sent to both uh, Secretary Clinton and Mr. Trump. We've not heard from Mr. Trump yet, not even a tweet, but we will continue to ask for his response. Uh, We have gotten a two-and-a-half-page response from Secretary Clinton talking about the blue economy, recognizing the the challenges of uh, pollution and climate change on our public seas, and talking about the need for uh, sustainable and transparent, healthy fisheries. And she spoke of, of several issues, and we're hoping we'll also get a response from Mr. Trump. But her letter certainly provides a baseline that we can go in and strategize and develop our own ocean agenda for the next administration and the next Congress, and hope to uh, really push it to make them recognize, as we had with past Hill days and meetings with administration people, that that there is a constituency, that people are willing to fly themselves or, or drive themselves, whatever it takes to, to come to Washington, D.C. and be heard and then go home to their districts and be heard. When, when uh, we created some of our first sanctuaries, it was in response to uh, marine sanctuaries in California and Florida and off New England. This was in response to popular opposition to proposed offshore oil. People took a negative and turned it into, into something good, and that's what I see as the hope. As I said, it's like that X, you know, one arm of the X is the declining marine ecosystem and, and all the, the threats we face. It may look vast and and immutable, but it's being impacted by our everyday actions. And as we realize that we can change our actions on an individual and political basis, we're at that moment, like like my friend Sylvia Earle says, you know, what we do in the next 10 years will impact our ocean planet for the next 10,000. Well, I think it's absolutely inspiring to know that you and people like Sylvia Earle and all many of the others that you mentioned previously are really on the front lines interacting with the politicians that are enacting laws and bills that are going to hopefully change the tide of how we're treating our oceans and how we're going to treat our oceans in the in the coming years. And in regards to what you were just saying about people taking individual action to help the ocean, um, I want to kind of transition into talking about you as an author. So you've written six books thus far most of which are about either environmentalism or ocean conservation. And I want to touch on a few of the books right now, um, one of which pertains to what I was just saying, individual change in favor of helping and protecting the ocean. Um, Your book, 50 Ways to Save the Ocean, which you wrote in 2006, 
Can you talk about, you know, obviously we don't want to talk about all 50 ways everyone can help save the ocean right now, but can you talk about a few of those ways for listeners, what they can do on an individual level in their daily lives? Sure. And and the reason I wrote the book, basically I was, after my first ocean book, Blue Frontier, I was going around and talking to people about, as I said, these cascading disasters. And people would come up to me afterwards and say, you know, well, it's great what you're you're doing. And I, I applaud your advocacy and I wish I could do it, but I've got a job or I'm looking for a job. I've got a double course load, whatever. And and what can I do about issues like the collapse of marine wildlife or climate change? And and I realized the answer is is we're all doing something about it, whether we're aware of it or not. Everything we do in our daily lives impacts the seas around us. Exactly. And so 50 Ways to Save the Ocean is, is really my response to, to those questions, which is it's not just about diving behavior, although I have a chapter on being a blue diver, take only pictures and leave only bubbles, but it's not just sustainable seafood. It's it's all our food choices. It's our energy choices. You know, eating more vegetarian and organic food have tremendous impacts on reducing uh, many forms of pollution from, from runoff to carbon pollution. Um, plus, it's healthier for you. And that's kind of, you know, in making the energy choices and choosing, you know, to drive less, carpool, use public transportation or bicycles. Uh, the, the good news is, is in all the ways that you can work to save the ocean, it turns out that what's good for the ocean tends to be good for, for you in terms of your pocketbook, your health, your sense of well-being. All these choices are um, that benefit the ocean, benefit us all. And, and so that's, that's a promising part of the story. I've, you know, it ranges from you know, from individual actions to immersing ourselves, taking, you know, taking time to go to some of the aquariums that are increasingly conservation oriented to uh, being a seaweed rebel, uh, voting the coast, making making the political choices that you can. And, you know, when I was younger, the, the saying was think globally, act locally. But the, the challenges we're facing now are local and regional and global, and we have to sort of think and act simultaneously at all levels. So, Yes, we need to take individual action, but we also need to take collective citizen action. It's kind of like somebody said, which do you do? Do you quit smoking or fight the tobacco companies? You, you really need to do both to make the kind of global changes we're talking about. Um, the good news is that we can scale up and there are solutions at scale. And, and as uh, one of my other books, the, the Golden Shore, is about, where I live in California, we've got 40 million people. We're the sixth largest economy on earth, but collectively we live well with our coast and ocean. And I think that, uh, you know, that each of us, wherever we live, there are just so many things, you know, one obvious one, using less plastic, both in our individual lives, working for plastic bans. People feel it's ubiquitous and it is, but historically, I mean, it was with just World War II, we invented Rayon and plastic as substitutes for war shortages in, in rubber and cotton. Plastic became this universal packaging material, and only as we used it and threw it away did we realize there's really no away. And unfortunately, it's worse than – it's sort of like a solidified oil spill, except oil will petroleum and will biodegrade. When you create it into synthetic polymers, they never degrade. They become this fine plastic that's now throughout the ocean ecosystem – and that fine plastic dust has consumed up the food web from the guts of krill to small fish to big fish till you order that seared ahe at your local uh, 
seafood restaurant and it becomes a circle of poison, uh, these plastic polymers are a million times as effective as seawater at absorbing other chlorinated compounds like uh, legacy DDT and PCBs. And so it becomes this toxic threat. And again, it's, it's, it starts with our individual realization that we can, we can get along without plastic wrapping. We can get along without the, those annoying styrofoam bits. And we have lots of, you know, simple things that, that people can do and, um, and, and are doing. And, and at the, our oceans, uh, conference I just attended with Secretary Kerry, five nations committed to banning plastic bags. And this is, of course, the result of, of citizen demand. And at the same time, 80% of the pulse now is coming out of developing countries where plastic has arrived without a waste management systems in place. And so, you know, if you improve the waste management in, in countries like the Philippines and Indonesia, um, that also improves public health. And so, getting rid of the plastic flowing out of our, our coasts also requires doing the kind of things that improves, uh, you know, the attractiveness of our environment and the health of our children. And the health of ourselves. Ourselves and, and our planet. And, and you know, I, I was recently talking in Colorado where there's a Colorado Ocean Coalition and, and somebody said, why do we care about the ocean here? And I said, like, well, let's take a breath and think about that. And, and on our next breath, that second breath that we take, that's the ocean. You know, about half of all the oxygen we consume and uh, is is generated by uh, algae in the ocean, by phytoplankton in the ocean. And and plankton's actually on decline over the last 40 years. A global decline in plankton, which is linked to uh, to the to the changes we're causing through uh, climate, through ocean warming and acidification and the other factors that are at play. I mean, we're in a we're in a moment of crisis and we have to make individual and collective commitments to turning it around. I mean, I, I last fall, I went out uh, on a work trip to Hawaii and went for a dive and saw bleached coral. And now it's it's gone global. There's a global bleaching event this past El Nino year that's that's hit 80 percent of the Great Barrier Reef. With that, many people talk about the fact that we are potentially causing a sixth mass extinction on this planet. You've touched on a number of different real large issues that are going on in our oceans from overfishing to plankton declines and plastic pollution problems. Can you talk a little bit about your perspective of what the oceans might look like in coming years, depending on what actions we take, and also the perspective of we can't kill the oceans. All these uh, issues that we talk about that are affecting our oceans, it's not that it's killing all life. It's that it's going to shift dramatically from what we know and love today. Yeah, the ocean will endure, but as we, as our inputs reduce, I mean, we've fished out 90% of the large pelagic open ocean fish to already. 40% of the coral reefs that were there when I first got to see, you know, as a kid, I, I was a little PO'd. I thought that I was too soon to visit alien worlds. And then when I was 15, I got a mask and snorkel in the Florida Keys. And so, you know, these living rocks uh, and shoaling fish and my first little hammerhead shark and sea turtles. And I realized there's these alien worlds right off the seawall. And yet it was 90% live coral cover there at, when I was 15. And the blink of an eye, which I've led my life, it's down to about 10% in the Keys. 
And so we've lost a lot, but but we haven't lost it all. You know, I was just in Palau and interviewing the president there, um, Tommy Rengasura Jr., who's one of our eventually award winners. They just declared 80% of their EEZ, an area, an ocean area larger than California, as as a no-take marine protected area. Diving there it was like this is what happens when you when you move to large scale solutions where you protect 80% of your waters. It was as I said, not shark infested, but shark enhanced waters where every dive you saw lots of healthy wildlife. So we've got two futures before us. I mean, one in which we take no action, we lose all our coral reefs that are, you know, the nurseries of much of our, our marine wildlife that act as uh, sources for tourist economies uh, for many island states and nations that that act as, as coastal storm barriers to prevent the worst of disasters. We could have one scenario in which we lose all our reefs and the oceans overheat and, uh, and a warmer, more acidic ocean holds less dissolved oxygen, which means a future in which um, we have an ocean full of jellies and microbial mats and far fewer bony fish and mammals. Or we can take, you know, we can recognize it as an emergency and do the kind of mobilization for our oceans and our climate that we did in World War II. Basically, within four years, built this industrial powerhouse and, and arsenal of democracy that defeated the global threat of fascism. And in the last century, we also defeated the global threat of, of the nuclear balance of terror that, that threatened a, a, a very rapid Armageddon. And now we're facing this not-so-slow-moving Armageddon of, of extinctions in our blue planet where 97% of our living habitat is salt water. And I realized we may not always have living reefs and, and a healthy ocean and, uh, and a stable climate unless we recognize that this is our war today. And it's it's not a war of uh, not solely a war of, of guns, although we need serious enforcement against pirate fishing and, and organized crime that's abusing our seas. But we also need wise choices. And those wise choices, you know, have to come from the bottom up, I believe. And we have to have this this change of awareness and mobilization and political action in a very brief period that we're, you know, we're living on the edge of a precipice. As you say, we're, we are the sixth extinction. It's it's underway. Uh, 60 million years ago, the last extinction was caused by a meteorite. Uh, only our species is the meteorite today. In your analogy of this war, this fighting for the ocean and the health of our planet is kind of the war of today, it's inspiring that all individuals, everyone listening and everyone on this planet can serve as a soldier, so to speak, for the ocean, you know, in our individual actions, like you talked about so much. So it's definitely inspiring to kind of think of it in that way that in history, we have mobilized to fight kind of real wars. And today, we can all make decisions to fight for our oceans and and build a movement, have allies. Each of us find something in our own lives that connect us to the sea. And as I say, you know, you protect what you love. I mean, I think what works here in California is that everybody has a sense of entitlement to the coast and ocean and access to it. And therefore, uh, we've developed, you know, from a late maritime frontier that was all about exploiting ocean resources, we've developed a sense of stewardship and a realization that we have a blue economy that depends on living well with the sea. And so we have, you know, the greenest ports, you know, we developed a greening port movement here in uh, Los Angeles that is now 
got 50 major ports around the world engaged in, in taking action. I think it was Margaret Mead who said, you know, don't believe that a small group of uh, dedicated individuals can't change the world. Indeed, nothing else ever has. I think that's absolutely spot on and absolutely inspiring. And kind of talking about Californians and what California as a state is doing to protect the ocean and its ports and things like that. You touched a little bit previously on your latest book, Golden Shore, California's Love Affair with the Sea. Can you share with listeners what's on the horizon in terms of maybe some upcoming events or ways that people can get the book? Sure. It's it's just come out in paperback with a new foreword by Ted Danson. And I, I wrote The Golden Shore also because I've been in D.C. and I, we still have an office there. But at a certain point, I felt like I'd spent years there, but I had to come home to California. And when I got here, I realized what we have to do is scale up the solutions faster than the problems. And I realized I'm living in one of the solutions. I mean, as I said earlier, there's, we're the most populous state, 40 million people, the world's sixth largest economy. And yet we live well with the ocean because there's that sense of, I mean, it's sort of a democracy of blue interest. We don't have a single industry or special saltwater special interest dominating policy. We have this, you know, range of interest. I have chapters on surfers, on the ports, on the Navy, on, on marine science here in California and all these different interests that we have. And, and, you know, you protect what you love. And, and because we have the beach access guaranteed under our coastal act, everybody uh, is able to get to the shore and uh, engage in the discussion. And everybody's very engaged. We have these tumultuous battles, but they tend to come out with good endpoints. It took us 10 years to establish this network of MPAs, marine protected areas, but now 16% of our state waters are protected. And we have the marine science that gets translated into policy. So we're the only state that has fully mapped our offshore waters to understand where we're operating. And yet we can't do it all. You know, it's sad to see that, that other people's energy choices and pollution choices impacting our coast and water so severely, but we can be a model and we hope to be a model. And I hope that with my book, The Golden Shore, people realize that there are lessons to be learned here, even as we're learning new lessons. And we've got these huge challenges, but it's also exciting. I mean, it's like I say, it's the blue frontier. We, we keep going out there and discovering new things and and ways that we can help. And ways that we can make a difference. And um, some of them are simple and some of them are incredibly complex. The challenges are huge and scary, and um, when the scientists are more scared than the, than average people, that's that's not a good thing. But I'm always sort of feeling optimistic when I get out in my cold California waters and and get to interact with some you know fish and seals and and get tangled up in some kelp and have some fun. Have some fun. Go body surfing. Just enjoy it. I mean, number one, there are 50 ways to save the ocean. Number one way is is go to the beach because we protect what we love. Well, for listeners, if you guys have been inspired by what David is doing in the political arena with his organization, Blue Frontier, and by what he's talked about in terms of some of the books that he's written, I'll be linking to the Blue Frontier website. That's bluefront.org when I post this podcast episode. So you guys can visit that website and learn 
even more about what David is doing with Blue Frontier and attend his Blue Vision Summit coming up in May of 2017. And um, I will also be linking to Dave's Amazon page. He's an author on Amazon, and you guys can find all six of his books that he's written there. If any really jump out at you or like the ones that we touched on today, 50 Ways to Save the Ocean and his latest book, Golden Shore. You guys can get those on Amazon there or an independent bookstore. We've got a link on our webpage to the Golden Shore webpage. We'll, we'll be doing talks and meeting with folks and uh, it's it's all good. I mean, I, I think it's uh, I get as much inspiration as anybody just meeting folks along the shore, along our Golden Shore and elsewhere who are, you know, who, who care. You know, care, love the ocean and, and, you know, want to know what they can do for it. Like we're all trying to figure out. So listeners, I'll be linking to ways that you can get David's books as well as the Blue Frontier website. And also I'm on the Blue Frontier website. You guys should check out David's Blue Notes. It's kind of a the name for his blog and he posts on there really regularly articles about the recent conferences he's been to or different political actions that have just been taken and um, they're really really great to read really great perspectives on the current and latest ocean policies and happenings. so definitely check out his blue notes on there as well so david i want to thank you for all of the work that you do for the ocean you are absolutely creating positive change in so many ways and it's inspiring to me and i'm sure it's inspiring to listeners as well and I also want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed talking with oh, you. Oh, thank you, Allison. It's it's been great, and I hope that you know your podcast becomes you know, required listening for everybody who loves the seas. Awesome. Me too. Thanks. You just heard David Helvarg, award-winning journalist and author, and the executive director of Blue Frontier. To learn more about the topics discussed in this podcast visit my website at alisonrandolph.com. To keep the podcast coming, contribute a dollar or more per episode at patreon.com slash oceanallison. And tune into next week's episode to hear another conversation between me and someone creating positive change for the ocean.